I'd like to call Mufti Izhar Khan uh, from Miami, Florida to the podium, please. So inshallah be speaking about uh, also another very important topic to da'wah, which is that once we've learned the akhlaq of giving da'wah, when it comes to the actual substance of how you're giving, the, or what you're speaking about, uh, his topic is answering common misconceptions about Islam. And as, any, as all of us know, uh, there are many, many prevalent misconceptions, misperceptions about Islam uh, in culture and in society and in the media today. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'afiruhu wa nu'minu bihi wa natawakkalu alayhi wa na'udhu billahi min shuroori anfusina wa min sayyati a'malina man yahdihillahu falamudillalah wa man yudhilhum falahadiyalah wa nashadu an la ilaha illa Allah wahdahu la sharika lah wa nashadu anna sayyidina wa maulana muhammadan abduhu wa rasooluh amma ba'd, faqad qala Allah ta'ala fi al-Qur'an al-Majid ma'ad a'udhu billahi min shaytan al-Rajim ادعوا إلى سبيل ربك بالحكمة والموعظة الحسنة وجادلهم بالتي هي أحسن وقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم بلغوا عني ولو آية وقال عليه الصلاة والسلام من رأى منكم منكرا فليغيره بيده فإن لم يستطع فبلسانه فإن لم يستطع فبقلبه وذلك أضعف الإيمان الله سبحانه وتعالى has mentioned in the Quran in the 14th juz, in Surah An-Nahl. That ud'u ila sabeel rabbika bil hikmah. That call and invite to the way of your Lord. Bil hikmah, with wisdom. Wal mawadatil hasana. And to beautiful teachings. Wajadilhum billati hiya ahsan. And argue with them. And reason with them in the ways that are best and most gracious. Unfortunately, many times when we give da'wah and we invite people towards Islam, and especially when we try to invite non-Muslims into Islam, a very essential and important tool that we lack is al-hikmah, wisdom. And this is why many, some, many times a person, he may be sincere, he may have ikhlas, he may only be doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But because he's lacking this very essential and important tool, al-hikmah, this is why he's not getting the results that he's expecting. So it is extremely important that whenever we invite to this religion, this deen of Islam, we should do it with al-hikmah, wisdom. And again, there's no set rule that I can mention about hikmah. It comes with experience and also learning and you know from the experiences and listening and taking the advice of those who are into this field of da'wah. Now many times, you know, the most common methodology that's used when you try to you know invite people to Islam, especially non-Muslims, the most common methodology that's used is we try to present a thousand good points about Islam. This is usually our methodology. But those who are into this field of da'wah, they say this is not a very effective way. Because you may say a thousand good points about Islam, but at the end of the day, at the end of the lecture, at the end of the conversation, he will still have these few misconceptions about Islam. He will still think that Islam is a religion that does not treat men and women equally. It ill-treats and mistreats women. Islam oppresses women. Islam is a religion that allows polygamy. Islam is a religion that subjugates women. Islam is a religion that was spread by the sword. Islam is a religion, the author says that we treat all living creatures, you know, with love, yet they're the ones that actually kills, kills animals for food. All the Muslims are the ones that stop others from polytheism and from worshipping idols, yet they're the one that worship the Kaaba. So they have these few questions and misconceptions that because of them, they become an obstacle in his way of accepting this deen. So a more effective way of giving da'wah, they say is by first answering these misconceptions that you have. Once his mind is empty, once his mind is empty, you can just present a few good points about Islam. And insha'Allah, either that person would accept Islam, 
If not, at least you can move, you can remove the hatred and the animosity that he has towards Islam, and thus bring him a step closer to Islam. So this is a more effective method by answering their misconception. And I've chosen some very common and very, very important misconceptions. And there will be few benefits of these, inshallah. Number one, if we're, we happen to be in a conversation with them, we can be very confident. If they ask us 10 questions, amongst the 10 questions that you ask, five or six, or majority of the questions that you ask, most of the times, they will revolve around the topics that I'm about to discuss. And many times the misconceptions that they have are such that they say with so much anger and rage that even we ourselves, we get confused. And sometimes we start doubting our religion. So inshallah, I'll mention these are very common misconceptions. Not only are they good, you know, in inviting others toward Islam, but also to remove the confusion and to remove the doubt that sometimes we may have about these things. So these are very, very important and very basic principles, very basic, you know, and common misconceptions. And the answers are all very brief, concise, but very, very important. So inshallah, I do not have any you know, sheets or anything, but if someone wants to write them, these are very, very important. The first question, or the first misconception, the most common one is, why does Islam allow polygamy? Why is it allowed in Islam that a man can marry up to four? Why is this allowed in Islam? Many times we become defensive. Sometimes we become apologetic. Sometimes we say something that actually the answer is distorting the rule of Sharia. For instance, you may hear people saying that no, it was only applicable in the time of Rasul It is not applicable anymore. Well, this is actually distorting the eye of the Qur'an because this is not abrogated. It's still in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does say, فَنْكِحُوا مَا طَابَ لَكُمْ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ مَثْنَا وَثُلَاثَ وَرُبَاعَ In Surah Nisa, in the fourth juz, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states that marry women of your choice in twos and threes and in fours. This is still mentioned in the Qur'an in Surah Nisa and it is still applicable nowadays. Also, I have to mention one more thing as well, that we cannot become you know, selective. Sometimes we hear through hadith and we get encouraged to do those things. But with those things, a lot of responsibilities also come. My only point is just to say that it's permissible. I'm not encouraging this because the rule of this is not that it is compulsory, farad, or wajib, or even sunni muakira. It is only permissible, and I'll tell you the reason why it is permissible. But again, if someone, you know, we should not, you know, I'm not encouraging anyone to do this because there's responsibility that comes also. And we should know those responsibilities. But again, that's not my topic. But there's so many hadith that warns us and tells us that a person who's not equal and does not treat both of his wives you know, with equality, on the day of judgment, he'll be punished severely. There's a hadith about that, that warns us about those. So we should know all those as well. With privileges comes responsibilities as well. So anyway, so what is the answer to this? Why is it allowed in Islam to marry more than one? And many times people accuse and lay allegations about Rasul that he was married more than, to more than one. Well, you can always tackle this question and answer it from two different angles. Either from a religious perspective or from a logical point of view. Many times it's good to quote some verses from their scriptures as well. Say the person, he's from a Hindu background or a Christian background, it is important to also quote some verses from their scriptures to see what is it that their religion has to say about it. Because many times they don't know what, they don't read as much about their scriptures. As the saying goes, that when you point at someone, you're pointing at someone and trying to find a fault in him, but remember, there's also three fingers that are pointing towards you. So many times they say so many things about Islam, but let's compare the same thing in their scriptures. For instance, when it comes to polygamy, Islam is the only religion, the only, uh, Quran is the only scripture on the surface of this earth which has this statement, If you fear 
that you cannot do justice, then marry only one. This statement that marry only one is only and only in the Quran. If you look at all the other scriptures, you would see that the thing that's encouraged, the type of marriage that's actually encouraged, is actually a polygamous marriage. If you look, the accuser Rasulullah, but look in the Old Testament, we see Ibrahim والسلام, he did not have one or two. It is mentioned he had three wives. Sulaiman or as he is better known as King Solomon, it is mentioned he did not have 20 or 30 wives. He had hundreds of wives. We also see, you know, many of the Hindus they point and they accuse Islam. But let's see what, what is it that their religion has to say about this. Because if you look at their sages and their saints and their leaders, we would see that they also married, to, they were married to more than one. You know, for example, the father of Ram in Dashrat, he had more than one wife. Lord Krishna had not hundreds, thousands of wives. This is in the scriptures. So again, if you look at it from a, you know, from a religious point of view, Islam actually has a lot of restrictions on this. Only up to four. Because before this restriction was there, men, you know, they used to marry more than that. 10, 20, 30. So Islam puts a restriction and actually there's a lot of rules regarding this. This is from a religious perspective. Now from a logic point of view, how do we answer this? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created us. He knows our situation better than us. And it is logical that we accept the rule of the one who created us. This logic, we use this in our practical life as well. Say you have a friend, he is sick. And, you know, a doctor suggests some kind of medicine for him. And for some reason you feel, because he's your friend, you feel it's just an opinion, it's just a feeling. Although you have no clue about medicine and you suggest something to him, whose opinion should he take? It is obvious and logical should take the advice of the doctor, the one who is into this field, because he knows the situation better than you. So similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He has created us. He knows our situation better than ourselves. So it's logical that we adhere to the rule of the Creator. Because if you were to actually take our opinion, we are over billions of people. On this earth, there are over billions of people. And each person has an opinion, especially about these controversial issues. Each person not has only one, sometimes they change and they have several views. If you take one opinion, there are billions of people, you have over billions of opinions. Which opinion would you take? Isn't it logical and doesn't it make much more sense that you actually adhere to the rule of the one who created you, who knows your situation better than yourself? And now, this could be the reason, and again, the real reason I will tell you, as for Muslims, the real reason why we do anything or why we are prohibited to do certain things is not because of hikmahs, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered us. Sami'ana wa ata'ana. We hear and we obey. This is the only reason. But just sometimes you have to supplement with other reasons as well, just to make them understand. So again, as I mentioned, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us. He knows our situation better than us. Therefore, we should adhere to the rule of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the reason why in this world, on this earth, there are more females than males. If you ask any pediatrician, they'll tell you that even in the childhood itself, there are more females than males. Because the male immune system cannot fight the germs as good as the female immune system. And therefore, more males are dying than females. You have more females than males. Statistics show that in this country alone, there are 7.8 million more females than males. In UK alone, there are 4 million more females than males. In Germany, there are 5 million more females than males. In Russia alone, there are 9 million more females than males. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best as to how many more females there are in the world than males. Few countries are reported to have less females. For instance, India. And I'll tell you the reason. It was reported that between 1951 to 1961, it was reported that 2,000 fetuses were aborted once they were identified as females. And they said, even if this evil practice is shunned and is stopped completely in India, 
even in India, in a few years, the female population would greatly outnumber the male population. So now, as you can say, you have a problem. You have more females than males. What is the solution to it? As Islam allows a man to marry more than one. A member is only, you know, mubah. It is not compulsory or farad. Now, say taking, you know, say this country, say the market is saturated and each male has taken one woman as a spouse. What would happen to those millions of females? Millions. And the problem over here is getting compounded. Why? Because if you look at New York, there's already one million more females than males. On top of that, one third of the population, they are sodomites, which means they will not like to have females as partners. In this country as a whole, there are 25 million men that are sodomites, which means they will not like to have females as partners. So you have 30 million females that will not find a spouse. So now, what would happen to all of these? One choice, not a solution. One choice that you have is, you know, tough luck for them, they did not find a spouse, and they should live a life of solitude. Logically speaking, this is not practical. This can never happen. Second choice is, which Islam gives, is that a man, he can marry more than one, but has to treat them equally. And they'll have respect, they'll have honor. Both of them will have financial help equally. And if the husband dies, both of them would be eligible for inheritance equally. If you look at those who are against and who oppose polygamy, even they know themselves that in this country, on an average, a person has eight different sexual partners before he settles down with one. Islam actually puts a limit. There's a lot of restriction up to four, and they have doubled it. They're the one they say, against, they're against polygamy, but they say, if a man, he should marry one. If he wants, he can have extramarital relationship with as many women as he likes. Logically, it does not make sense at all. Because if you compare the two, polygamy and this, in this system, all the other women, they will have no honor, no respect. They will not be legible for financial you know, help. If the husband dies, they will not get inheritance. But over here, they'll have honor, they'll have respect. There will be, you know, the husband, he's, you know, by sharia, he's forced to treat them equally. And in fact, there's a story about Mu'ashif al rahimahullah, that once a person came, and he had more than one wife. It is said that someone brought two watermelons. It was a villager, and he brought, and he came to Mu'ashif al and he said, this is for, for, you know, both of your houses, since he had two wives. So Mu'ashif al he ordered that each watermelon should be cut into exactly two halves and give half of each watermelon to each house. So the person said that, oh Shaykh, I know that you know, you're very you know, careful about this situation and this is why I took a lot of time out and I actually measured them to see that both of them are equal so you don't have to worry about it. He said, yes, I know this. They may be equal in measurement but are they equal in taste as well? So this is the rule of Sharia. This is a different story where men, whether they're treating women equally or not. Again, from Sharia, they have to treat them equally. I'm talking about the rule of Sharia, not what people are doing. So, I mean, if you compare the two, any person, even a woman, even if she's not religious, even if she's not modest, as long as she's sane, for her own personal benefit, I'm sure of the three choices that I presented, she would choose this one. And again, as I said, I'm not encouraging this, I'm just only removing the misconception about Islam. Otherwise, I will get into a lot of trouble. And the second misconception, which is, you can say, a counterpart, you know, is an extension of the first question. That if polygamy, if this is allowed, why polyandry is not allowed in Islam? And since I'm using these terms, I also like to define these words. Because although you can use the word polygamy, but because we're using these words, we should also know their meaning. The more appropriate word for polygamy is not polygamy, is polygyny. Because polygamy is a general term. Polygyny means a man having more than one wife. And Islam allows it only up to four. Another type of polygamy is polyandry, which means a woman having more than one husband. And this is completely forbidden in Islam. 
So not all types of polygamy that are allowed in Islam, only certain types. But again, this word is very common, so if someone uses it, there's nothing. But just wanted to define these words. Now, why isn't this allowed? Holly Andrew, why isn't this allowed in Islam? Number one, you can look at it from a religious perspective. No religious scripture, none of the other religion, they have allowed this type of marriage. Only, and similarly, Islam also prohibits it. Another reason, there are already more females than males. If you allow this, you're not bringing a solution to the problem. You're worsening the problem. Because you have fewer males and you have more females. And because of this, fahasha, immorality and corruption would spread in this world. A third reason, men by nature, this is a fact, everyone accepts this, by nature, they are more polygamous. If they say that a woman, if she has a husband, and the husband treats her well, fairly, and he treats her well, she will be satisfied. But men, by nature, they're polygamous. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, again, He has created us, and He knows our situation, and He knows our nature, and this is why He has allowed this type of marriage, and prohibited that type of marriage. Fourth reason, you can say a medical reason or a scientific reason, is they say, doctors, they say, I'm not talking about Muslims, doctors, they say that if polygamy is practiced, health-wise, there's nothing wrong with it. If you allow polyandry, and if you practice any society that practice this type of marriage, there will be a lot of diseases. A lot of horrible diseases can originate. You will have sexually transmitted diseases, and they can be retransmitted to the husband. But if you have this kind of marriage, polygamous marriage, health-wise, there's nothing wrong with it. So these, this is the answer. Again, I have to go quickly because, inshallah, these are very important topics, but they will be discussed, inshallah, by another speaker in more detail. Now, second, third misconception people have about Islam is, Islam subjugates women by keeping her under the veil. Islam subjugates women. And again, when I'm saying these things, these are just very brief points so you can remember. So whenever you have to talk to someone, you feel confident and you'll know how to answer. Otherwise, don't just limit yourself to this and just don't be satisfied with this. I'm just introducing the topics and inshallah, when we go back home, we should know what type of topics to, this, uh, to do research on. So again, third misconception is Islam oppresses and subjugates women by keeping her under the veil. Now I'd just like to first answer the first part. Islam subjugates women. In fact, Islam has not only given rights to women, has in fact uplifted women. It is now their duty and responsibility to maintain it by dressing modestly. Let's compare it to other civilizations and you know religions and see how women were treated before we talk about Islam. If you look in the Babylonian civilization, it is said, if a man killed someone, it will be the wife of the killer who will be killed in retaliation. In the Greek civilization, women, they were known as the Pandora, meaning a sign of misfortune, and were just used for sex and pleasure. In the Roman civilization, women, they were ill-treated. In the Egyptian civilization, women, they were known as the sign of the devil. And we know in the Arab civilization, there were many of the women, many of the infants, if they were females and they were born, they would be buried alive. You see, even in Hindu civilization, even in their religion, and this is actually a person is amazed at how they can point at Islam when this is what their religion teaches, you know. Because in their religion, if a man is married to a woman and the man dies, the woman, she can never be married. This, now this is a different case whether they're practicing this or not, but this is their belief. So say if the woman, you know, she's very young, for the rest of her life she cannot be married. And in one sect of Hinduism, it is said that the woman, she should be burned alive with the husband. Now, and even in this day and age, those who talk about freedom, in the name of freedom, they have actually enslaved women. In the name of freedom, they have enslaved women. Because if we talk about equality, equality in the true sense, only Islam actually treats both of them equally in the true sense, not in the literal sense. Because you can't treat them equally in the literal sense. Because physically they're different. If you look at a woman, you know, they give birth 
you know, so you can't treat both of them equally. And because of that, you cannot you know, expect them to work on a construction site and work outside, because physically they're different. So Islam treats them equally, but that does not mean that they're identical. Physically, they're different. And equality in the true sense is, since physically both of them are different, therefore they should also have different responsibilities. This is really equality in the true sense, if you just think about it. This is not equality that both of them, they're different. Physically, they're different. They're capable of doing different things, yet you give them the same thing. This is not equality. It may be equality in the literal sense, but not equality in the true sense. And Islam, you know, equ uh, treats them equally in the true sense. When it comes, you know, about veil and how come women they have to wear parda and hijab, all the other, you know, if you look in, the, in history, in all the other religions, you will see women, they were always ordered to dress modestly. Even in, you know, in the Old Testament, if I remember, it is said that if a woman, if she reveals her hair, her, you know, she should be shaved. And Islam also, you know, encourages women, and in fact, in its compulsory that they should dress modestly. If you look, this is why the nurses, you know, if you see, you know, many of them, they dress very modestly. If you look, for example, as late as 1920 or 1930, many, if in history, if you look in the pictures, you see many of the women, they used to dress very modestly. I'm talking about, you know, in, the, in this part of the world. Many of the women, they used to dress very modestly. It was almost similar to the hijab of women. Dress, you know, modestly cover their hair to such an extent that you, some of them, you see they will wear gloves on their hands. Only the face would show. But it was very close to the hijab of of, you know, of women in Islam. So again, this is something which was in all the religion and all the religions in the previous times, they encouraged it. So women, they should you know, dress modestly. Another misconception about Islam, which was already talked about in detail is, is was Islam shut by the sword or not? And again, if you look in history, you can clearly see this was one of the biggest fallacies. Because if you look at Musa ibn Umar anhu, which sword was it that he used to convert all those people of Medina, and you know, they became Sahaba. Which sword did he use? If you look, statistics show that between 1930 to 1980, it is said that, you know, there was statistics about major, you know, uh, increase in major world religions. And number one was Islam, more than 200%. Number two was Christianity. Again, what war took place, or what sword was used to convert all these millions of people into the fold of Islam? You know, as he had mentioned, the speaker earlier, that which army went to the east coast of Africa, or to Indonesia, and to Malaysia, to convert all those people into the fold of Islam? If you look at India, you know, Muslims ruled India for a thousand years, yet still 80% of them are still Hindus. So this is a clear thing that Islam, you know, there's no such thing as Islam being spread by the sword. Even if they had the metallic sword, still they cannot use it. Because the Quran says in Surah Baqarah, in the third juz, لا إكراه في الدين There is no compulsion in religion. The next misconception people have about Islam, and this is usually asked by Hindus. And as we know, Hindus, Indians, they're actually one-fifth of the world's population. And 80% of Indians, they are Hindus. And not only them, many vegetarians, they always ask this question. So this also becomes one of the most common questions. And that is, if you look in Hinduism, they say Hin Hinduism is the only religion that actually treats all life with love and respect. Islam, although they say we love everything with love and with respect, all life with love and respect, yet they're the ones that kill animals, like cows for instance, kill them for food. They're living beings and they're killing these cows for, you know, and they say uh, the Islam is, means peace. Well, the logic they use many times is that killing a living being, this is a sin, you should not kill it, because this is a sin. So the logic and the argument they present is, you should not kill anything that's living. Now again, if you use human logic, you always get stuck. Therefore, it's better to stick to the rule of Sharia. Because if to use this logic, then you have to stay with it the whole time. The logic they use is, every living being is, there are brothers, they should not be killed. Well, if that is the case, you cannot be a vegetarian. You cannot eat vegetables. 
because they have discovered before they didn't know, but now scientists, and it is a common fact, that, veg that plants, they're living. They actually breathe. They actually, in fact, to such an extent, some scientists, they have done research and they've discovered they have emotions. Some of them can even cry and they have emotions. This, again, this is not too far-fetched or exaggerated. In the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, وَإِن مِّن شَيْءٍ إِلَّا يُصَبِّحُ بِحَمْدِهِ Everything praises Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and glorifies Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's just that the human ear can detect it. Because the human ear could only detect between 20 cycles per second to 20,000 cycles per second. Anything above or below that, any frequency above or below that, the human ear can detect it. You know, if you know about the sign and dog whistle, that the owner, he whistles and the dog comes running out. A human ear can detect it, but the dog, the dog, he hears it. Because the dog ear can detect up to 40,000 cycles per second. So it is, you know, the owner whistles, you know, between frequency of 20,000 cycles per second to 40,000 cycles per second. So the human ear can detect it, but the dog hears it and comes running. So anything above or below that, the human ear can detect. And similarly, plants, we don't have to go into all these details, I'm just mentioning it, but it's a simple fact, the plants, they're living. So if those who are saying, the logic they use, that you cannot kill animals because you're killing life, well, plants, they're also living. And in fact, if you were to use this logic, you cannot survive for even five minutes. Because when you breathe, you should not even breathe. Because scientifically, the germs and the bacteria that we're breathing, they're also classified as living. They may seem to be very small for us, just because we don't see them, because the logic they use is, anything living you cannot, you know, you cannot consume or you cannot eat or kill. Now, you cannot see it, but they're still living. It may seem very simple for us. They may be very microscopic, but if you look under a microscope, you may see that it's like a whole factory that's working inside. It may seem very simple for us, but I'm sure maybe for some scientists, they may be more complex than human beings. So if you look at it, they're also living. So if this is the logic you use, then no one should, you know, even be, no one should even breathe. So again, if anything, if you use human logic, we always get stuck. Accept the rule of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that is, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I have not created ins, you know, human beings and jinns, except to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, we're here to serve Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And everything else has been created to serve us moderately, according to the guidelines of Sharia. So again, everything we can use, we can kill animals, we can eat them, as long as we do it according to the Sharia. There's also a lot of rules for this too. We cannot make the animal suffer. There's a lot of rules for that as well. But everything has been created for us, and we have been created to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The next misconception they have about Islam is that they use the saying, you know, that a person is what he eats, that you are what you eat. And Muslims, they eat animals. Therefore, they behave like animals. They use this. Well, actually, this is the reason. We also use the same thing. And actually, we use the same thing to refute their argument. You are what you eat. And this is in the Quran as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya rusul The O Prophet, eat of what is pure and do amal salih. Because if you eat what is pure, you'll be inclined to do what is pure and halal. If you eat what is impure, it'll have an effect on you. And you'll be inclined to do what is haram. So what you eat, the people that you are around with, the things that you say, the things that you hear, has an effect on you. So again, they say that you are what you eat. You know, Muslims, they eat animals, and therefore they behave like animals. Actually, this is the reason why we can't eat, we can't eat pig. Because if you eat pig, you start behaving like a pig. Also, if you look at it, we are not allowed to eat many animals. For example, animals that are carnivorous. You know, for instance, like lions, tigers, you know, all these animals we cannot eat because they're very ferocious, they're very violent. And if we eat them, we also inherit their qualities. Rather, we're allowed and we should eat animals because as Muslims, we're very peaceful and loving people. And we like to eat animals that are, you know, are herbivores like cows, goats, sheep, they don't eat other animals. They're not ferocious. They just only eat grass and very peaceful and very quiet. So if we eat these kind of animals, we'll also inherit their qualities as well. The next misconception they have about Islam is that Muslims, 
they say, okay, if you present all these proofs, they'll say, okay, fine. If you want to eat animals, this is fine. But why do the animals have to suffer? Why do you have to slaughter the animal in such an inhumane and barbaric way? You slaughter the animal with a sharp blade. You have to cut the windpipe, the esophagus, the two you know, jugular veins, and make the animal suffer, and he's you know, dying a very painful death. Okay, if you want to eat an animal, you should you know, sacrifice it in a way, kill it in a way which is very painless. This is the argument they present. They say you should kill in some other method, which is not the Zabiha method, maybe the stunning method or some other method. Well, let's actually analyze both of these methods and see which is more beneficial for the animal and for us as well. The stunning method or any other method which is used other than the Zabiha method, which is used, and not again, I'm not saying Muslims, researchers, they say that if the animal is killed in that way, for instance, through stunning, the animal goes through a lot of pain. Eventually it dies because of pain, due to pain. And what is, when it is dying, it actually builds a lot of adrenaline. And when it dies, it dies in that state. That it has actually accumulated so much of this. And this is very toxic. This is a chemical very toxic. And we cannot eat this. It is very deadly for human consumption. When the animal dies, it dies in that state. Moreover, the animal, it dies in a state of shock. All the blood, it becomes stagnant inside the body. And therefore, we know that blood, there's a lot of bacteria and germs. You know, it's concentrated with bacteria and germs. And if you eat, if you eat both of these things combined, you know, there's no need to you know, drink poison. And this is the reason why, actually, over here in this you know, country, many people, all those advanced country, but people are are getting sicker more than ever before. There are more medication, there are more professional doctors, yet there are diseases here, some of them you may not even find in the third world countries. People may be dying over there, but because of lack of food. Over here because of eating food. So again, you know, this is the reason that, you know, this is the, you know, when they slaughter the animal, this is the effect. And this is, you know, if you now compare that to the Islamic method, the Zabiha method, look at it. When you slaughter the animal, they say when you, with a sharp blade, when you actually cut the windpipe and the esophagus, as long as, not only Muslims are saying this, this is researchers, as long as you do not cut the vein, you know, you do not severe the head from its body, and you just cut all these four arteries, number one, all the blood flows out, because the heart is still pumping. So number one, we don't have to face that problem. Second, the animal actually does not go through any pain. They say you may see the animal slithering and moving his hands, his feet, but it is not due to pain. It is because so much blood gushes from his body, and because of that, you know, the animal is slithering and moving his hands and his feet. As long as you don't actually, you know, severe the head from his body, it will not go through any pain because there is a vein over there. And also it does not, you know, accumulate, you know, the adrenaline, and also we do not consume that. And this is why an animal which is slaughtered according to the Zabiha method, it stays fresh longer than you know, meat that is slaughtered in any other method, which is not the Zabiha method. So this is the reason. If we eat something which is according to Zabiha, not only is it beneficial for you, but also it is good for the animal as well. The next misconception people have about Islam is that although we stop and prohibit and prevent others from you know, worshipping idols and from worshipping and doing sajda to, any, to anything else besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but we Muslims, all of us, we were worshipping the Kaaba. You know, we Muslims, we worship the Kaaba. But again, our aqidah is, we are not worshipping the Kaaba. We are worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered us, and therefore we are worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Through the instructions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we are doing this. Because we Muslims, we believe in unity. We should have consecration and we should be unified. And this is why, you know, they say if the structure of the Kaaba was to be moved, still we would have to face towards the direction, not towards the structure itself. And this is why the saying of Umar ibn al-Khattab makes this very clear, and this shows what our belief is about Kaaba. He said, when he was performing Tawaf, this is in Sahih al-Bukhari, he came and he was about to you know, uh, kiss the Hajar Aswad, the black stone, and he said, I know that you can neither harm me or benefit me. I will never have kissed you, but 
If I had not seen Rasulullah doing so, I would have never done it. Because you cannot benefit me or harm me. So again, it shows clearly that we Muslims, we do not worship the Kaaba. We worship in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The next misconception they have about Islam is how come we allow Muslims to come and you know, we welcome them and invite them to our country. But Muslims, they, are not, you know, they do not allow us to come into some of the areas. For example, Makkah and Medina. If they ask you on a personal level, you can always say, you know, number one, we don't rule. We're not ruling Makkah and Medina. So you cannot blame us for what someone else is doing. Second reason, if you look at it from a religious perspective, it is, there is a difference of opinion. Many scholars do agree that you know, non-Muslims can enter. But I will not take that approach. Even if you take the opinion of those ulama who say it is prohibited for non-believers to enter Makkah and Medina, this is also reasonable. It's logical. Every country, if you go to, they have a restricted area, a restricted zone. You cannot go there. Even if you're the citizen of that country, you cannot go there. You know, for example, if you're in this country, you cannot go into the military place. This is a restricted zone. Only those who are defending the country, they can reside there. But a normal person, even if you're the citizen, you can't go there. Similarly, in the Muslim world, we also have some restricted areas, restricted zones. Not every common person or citizen can go there. Only those who are defending the deen, only they can go there. You can, you're welcome to come anywhere else, but that is a restricted area. Moreover, if you look at it, Every place you go to, you have to apply for a visa. You have to adhere to the laws and rules. If you want to go, for example, to Singapore, you have to adhere to the laws. That if you're going there and you have, for instance, drugs, you would have to face the death penalty. Now, whether you like it or not, whether you think this is a barbaric law or not, if you want to go there, you have to accept this law. You have to accept this rule. Any country you want to go to, you have to say certain things, or write certain things, or believe in certain things. If you don't want to do those things, then you cannot enter. This is a simple rule. You know, in fact, going to, even for non-Muslims, and according to the opinion of those scholars, entering Mecca and Medina is very simple, very easy. You know, very less restrictions. In fact, coming to this country is very difficult for some of the third world countries, you know, for those who are living in third world countries, it is difficult for them to come over here. They have to, you know, adhere to all the laws, all the rules, and even if they say yes, yes, yes to everything, and they say all these different things, still they will be, you know, examined. Some of them may be rejected, others will enter. But if for Makkah and Medina, very simple. Not too many restrictions, not too many laws and rules, not too many things you have to write and say. All you have to say is, just say and believe in your heart, and say with your tongue, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, wa ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah, and you are more than welcome to come enter Makkah and Medina. The next misconception or question that I have about Islam is why do people have or why does Islam have so many strict rules about diet? Why is it that we're not allowed to eat, for instance, pork? Well, the main reason again for Muslim is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered us and we say, Sami'na wa ata'ana. We hear and we obey. Now, the logical reason, this is just to supplement it, is it is known, and again, this is actually written by a person who wrote a book and he is not a Muslim. He did not write it from a religious aspect. I do not even know if the person is a Muslim or Christian, or I have no idea, and it does not seem that he is a Muslim at all, from the outward aspect. Anyway, this person, he wrote, it's a book on how to live a healthy lifestyle, how to have, you know, what should be your diet. And one of the things that he emphasized, there's few points, and one of the points that he emphasized, he has a separate point for that, is, we should completely eliminate pork from our diet. Because this is one of the toxic animals. It's so toxic that when we eat this, you know, our system goes into overdrive. All the blood rushes to the stomach trying to digest it, but it is never fully digested. And they say, if a person who did not eat this for say two months straight, and then he ate you know, a good amount of it, surely he will fall terribly sick. So this is the, you know, and this, it is said, pig is the only animal on the surface of this earth that eats anything in its path. In fact, it eats actually its own feces. So again, this is the reason, the same thing before, you are what you eat. So this is the reason why we're not allowed to eat this. Another is, 
why is alcohol forbidden in Islam? Why is you know such a strong you know why is there such a strong prohibition about alcohol? And the answer for this is very simple. Why is alcohol forbidden in Islam? Because of the evil effects of it. You know, and you can see that look at all the crime. Many of them are because of they're alcohol related. Many of the crime. Shooting, killing, all the accidents, because of you know, drunk driving, all these different reasons. So if you actually prohibit this, you know, the crimes they will be much lesser. You cannot completely eliminate it, but they will be much lesser, this is for sure. And they say they will tell you the benefits of alcohol. But again, this is also mentioned in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, There is some benefit in it. But the sin and the evil effect of it is worse than is the than its benefit. So this is the reason why we are actually prohibited and we're not allowed to drink alcohol. And again, I will not go into the scriptures, just even in this country, they try to prohibit this. If you know about the American history, in this country, they actually, it was a multi-billion dollar project. They spent billions of dollars trying to ban alcohol. But again, they spent so much, but the effect and the result of it was even worse. When they, you know, gave, and this, this is the 19th or 20th amendment in the constitution. When they banned it, people started selling it more than ever before. They started drinking it more than ever before. And because of this, they lost all hope. They say we're spending so much money, we're wasting billions of dollars, and the effect and the consequences of it is even worse. So the next amendment or the one after that was the legalization of wine. Drink as much as you want from the, you know, from our point of view, this is not legal anymore. But now since we're talking about da'wah, I also would like to mention about the method and the, you know, the method of the da'wah of Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because he had prepared the hearts for these ahkam. Over here it was just do's and don'ts. But look, we go back 1400 years when the ayah was revealed. يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْخَمْرِ وَالْمَيْسِرِ and then the ayah, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu, la taqrabu salah wa antum sutara. And finally the ayah, Innam al khamru wal maysur wal ansabu wal azlamu ritsum min amali shaytan, fajtanibu. As soon as the ayah was revealed, many of the sahaba, they were not just, you know, they were born in fitrah, but many of them converted into Islam. You know, because they used to worship many of them, you know, idols and they used to drink before the prohibition. Many of them were, in fact, as you can say, Habitual wine drinkers. They may have, you know, they used to probably, you know, drink like barrels of wine. But when this eye was revealed and this eye was recited, because remember, the Sahaba Rasul had prepared their hearts. You know, as soon as the eye was revealed, some of the Sahaba who were drinking wine, as soon as they heard the eye, they just dropped it. Others even went to the point of breaking the container that they had. And it is reported that some even went to the extent of putting their fingers inside their throat, trying to vomit what they had drunk. So again, I would just mention this is the method and the method of the da'wah of Rasul So this is not something new, even in other religions and even over here, they try to ban alcohol. And I would just mention one last you know, misconception. The people say that Islam is the best religion, but Muslims are the worst people. But actually, Islam is the best religion, and Muslims are the best people. And I'll go into a lot of details, but we know there's always black sheep in every community. And many times, because we are always influenced by the media, even we as Muslims, we also sometimes make the statement. But if you look at it, even if one million Muslims, they're robbers, they're thieves, they're killing innocent people, even in one million people, does not even make up 1% of the Muslim population. Because there are over a billion Muslims. And one million, one billion is equivalent to a million multiplied by, not a hundred, by a thousand. So if you had 10 million Muslims, then that's only one percent. If you had 20, 30 million, there's only three, four percent. How about the rest, 95 to 96 percent of Muslims? Either they're neutral or either they're actually, you know, enjoying good. Because if you look at statistics, they say Muslims as a whole, they actually give the maximum number of charity. The maximum amount of charity is donated by Muslims. Muslims as a whole, they're the, clean, the cleanest nation on this earth. Muslims. And I know everyone agree to this. A Muslim, they're the cleanest people on the surface of this earth. Muslims as a whole, the women, they're the most modest. 
that was, you know, very modest. There's so many things. So again, we cannot just, because of what some people do, we cannot just blame the whole community or the whole nation for it. Muslim are the best, uh, Islam is the best religion, and Muslim are the best people. So these are the few misconceptions people always ask, and you should know these. People always ask, and you should remember them, and try to memorize them, and also do more research when you go back home. Another also, I'm not going to it, but just mention it, the people also ask these questions, like, you know, prove the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They also ask these questions. You can do research on this. Also prove that there's life after death. They also ask this question as well. Another question is, we want to accept Islam, but there's so many different sects in Islam. Which one do we accept? Which one do you go by? So again, the answer to this is very simple. You know, again, the answer was given by Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That there would be so many sects, but Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told us which one to follow. Ma ana alayhi wa ashabi. The one which is following Mathab and which is following my sunnah and the sunnah of the Sahaba ajma'in. So whichever sect that is, you follow that. And we, as we know, that is Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. So again, these are the few misconceptions we could, we should, you know, remember them and memorize the answers to them. And also, if you want, you can also do research on them when you go back home. Just before the break, uh, as Mufti Azhar was speaking, I remember one of these scholars have mentioned a story about himself that he's flying in a plane and people around him were drinking. So someone approached him and said, how come you don't drink? So he said, if I would try to explain to him in a way that this is haram, this is forbidden, he won't understand. And most of the time, people don't understand the words of Allah. They just want to use their own brain. So he said, I would drink, provided that you make the pilot drink too. <laughs> so he said, the pilot is on duty. The pilot is on duty. He cannot drink. He said, I'm on duty too. He said, what duty you're on? I'm duty on by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on his deen. <laughs> My duty is the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At this time, I'm doing the work of the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I'm on duty. I cannot drink. When this duty will be over, Allah will give it to me in Jannah. <laughs> And Alhamdulillah, you know, these are, of course, it's just mind-opening, really. I mean, these type of answers that where a person can understand, uh, talk to the person according to his understanding and according to their level and according to their background. Before talking to a person, it's always good to know that person's background, where he comes from, and what type of things he would understand, what type of logic this person would be able to digest. And his small brain, you know, he thinks it's too big, but his small brain cannot digest what Allah says because that's too big of a thing for him, too heavy. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna salulqi People who have good, strong brand, they can take qawlan qatila, this heavy word from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But for some other people, it becomes too heavy, they can't carry it. So, go according to their understanding. You talk to children according to their level. Then talk to adults according to their level. So those who are children, they don't understand the words of Allah, talk to them according to the level of things that they have seen only. Those who have a good brain, alhamdulillah, strong brain, talk to them about the wahi that came from heaven from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They will even understand what's happening on the heaven and they will believe in it.